the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, glory, and evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Saturday, Saturday marks the 40th anniversary of Henry Kissinger's secret trip to China, July of 1971, which paved the way for Richard Nixon's opening. Henry Kissinger published a book a few weeks ago on China, which is riveting and grossing and uh, really quite troubling. So I went to work to try and line him up, and I was able to speak with the former Secretary of State earlier today and play for you that interview now. Henry Kissinger. Welcome to the Hugh Hewitt Show now, Dr. Henry Kissinger. Congratulations, Dr. Kissinger, on the publication of On China. It is really an extraordinary book. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Um, We are coming up on the 40th anniversary on Saturday of the arrival in Beijing of an American delegation led by you, then National Security Advisor. So I wanted to begin with some details about that trip including how, I did not know this, uh, the Chinese had sent people ahead to Islamabad to join you on the plane. Did that surprise you? Yes, I had no idea that this would happen. So when I got on the plane, the the Pakistanis told me at the last moment, uh, but I had two Secret Service people with me, and I didn't tell them. And when they got on the plane and saw four people in Mao uniform sitting there, they thought they might have to do their job right on on the spot. Huh. One of them was Nancy Tang, who uh, recurs in On China. She's really quite an amazing figure. Uh, explain who she is to our audience. Uh, and actually, I saw her again last week in Beijing because they had a celebration of uh, all the people who had to, to commemorate the 40th visit. Oh. And they invited all the survivors to a, to a dinner. Anyway, Nancy Tang is a Brooklyn-born Chinese-American who worked, uh, whose technical job was interpreter to uh, to the top Chinese leaders. She spoke uh, perfect English. Uh, we thought at the time that she was ideologically on the extreme side in China and that she was being used by Mao to keep him informed about what was going on in the negotiations and to uh, act as a counterweight to Zhou Enlai. She told me in Beijing last week that that was not correct, uh, although uh, this I can't, can't judge. In, in she, was, the- she was a powerhouse. You tell the story about the only time you saw Joe and Lai lose his temper is when you brought up Confucius and suggested that the PRC had managed to meld Marxism into his tradition. And that quote, uh, Zoe exploded. The only time I saw him lose his temper, he kept up the argument, no doubt to some degree, so as to have it on the record for the benefit of Nancy, of Mao through Nancy Tang. That, could yes, you? Exactly. That was 
it all, I thought she played. Uh, it was not a very thoughtful remark on my part because we found out later that Cho was being accused uh, by Mao of being a, a confusion, really, a, a, a secret confusion, or, or, uh, and that, uh, and shortly after all of this, not because of this, Cho was relieved of his office. Uh, did you um? Did you when you got off the plane? You write about you know no American really had any experience of Chinese diplomacy, and so you're being greeted by one of the four marshals that Mao recalled from disgrace to help figure out China's strategic options. Did all of that register when you were getting off the plane, or is that all in retrospect that you could figure out the significance of sending a PLA officer? I knew he was a marshal, and I knew at that time he was commander of the. Uh, what the so-called People's Liberation Army. What we did not know was that he had been purged and recalled. Uh, that we didn't know, partly probably, because my trip was prepared secretly, so I could not vet names uh, with the CIA. But I didn't know that he would be greeting me until, again, shortly before my arrival, and we were not all that familiar with all the ups and downs of Chinese leaders during the Cultural Revolution. You know, what's amazing about those chapters, about this trip, the anniversary of which we're marking this Saturday, is that you really didn't have much preparation for anything, uh, because we'd never done it before. It comes through uh, when you sit down with Zhou Enlai for the first time, and you have a, a con- quote, a conceptual discussion at some point sounding more like a conversation between two professors of international relations on page 240. What had you been expecting? I didn't know what to expect, but what we basically had experience with were Russian negotiators who are totally different from the Chinese. Russian negotiators fight over every comma as if it were uh, a station on the road to Moscow against Napoleon's armies. Uh, the Chinese understand that uh, that a psychological framework can be more important than the physical framework. But what I expected, what I came to China to do were two things. One, to see whether there was a possibility of continuing negotiation, preferably through a negotiation between Mao and Nixon. Uh, secondly, to establish a framework within which such a negotiation could take place. So uh, the reason we talked like two college professors was because we were trying to explain to each other how we viewed what the future would hold for us over the next, say, five years, so that when specific steps were taken, one had a framework within which to, uh, to consider it. Uh, so, uh, on the one hand, I didn't know exactly what to expect, but I did know that if the mission failed, it would, of course, be a public relations disaster for us. This it would also be a huge political setback for the Chinese, because it would demonstrate to the Soviets, of whom they were mortally afraid at that moment, that they were truly isolated. And what gave the Chinese an impetus for the uh, coming together was their increasing fear of a Soviet attack 
along the Manchurian uh, and Xinjiang borders. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. That comes through throughout the entire book. So does it's a marvelous portrait of these uh, these amazing uh, leaders of the PRC, Mao and Cho, and then of course Deng Xiaoping and Zhang Zemin. I want to quote for the audience uh, your quick summary. Mao dominated any gathering. Joe suffused it. Mao's passion strove to overwhelm opposition. Cho's intellect would seek to outmaneuver it. Mao was sardonic, Cho penetrating. Mao thought himself a philosopher. Cho saw his role as an administrator. Mao was eager to accelerate history. Cho was content to explore its current. Explain what accelerate history means, Dr. Kissinger. It sounds a little bit like, you know, Francis Fukuyama and the end of history. Did Mao think he could actually jump entire decades or even centuries? Uh, Mao, yes. That's, uh, Mao had a vision of the, had a vision of the future. And he thought of himself in the same role as a Chinese emperor that uh, 2,000 years earlier uh, unified China and built the Great Wall and uh, and brought about the evolution of Chinese history that one has seen then. But he had one uh, problem in his own mind, which was that he did not trust the Chinese people to move at such a pace. And he remembered and kept pointing out that many attempts at reform or or changing China had failed because the Chinese people in its traditional way would slow them down to a point that they lost their momentum. (laughs) So he was determined to do the whole thing in his lifetime. And he wanted to bring about an irreversible transformation uh, while he uh, still lived, and, and therefore he never permitted things to settle down. As soon as he had made one move, uh, uh, rather than let people recuperate and catch their breath, he would he would make another move. Uh, that, of course, created horrendous casualties and uh, and suffering. In fact, you talk in the context of uh, describing Cho as the advisor to the prince, Cho Enlai, to Mao, occasionally faces the dilemma of balancing the benefits of the ability to alter events against the possibility of exclusion. Would he bring his objections to one policy to a head? How does the ability to modify the prince's prevailing conduct weigh against the moral onus of participation in his policy? This is the dilemma that Cho Enlai had. Do you think that that Mao's brutality weighed on him? Did you ever get a sense of that, Dr. Kissinger? I had the sense, well, on the one hand, one of course has to recognize that Joe and Lai was prime minister, 
during all the excesses of the Mao uh, of the Mao period. Stop right there. We'll back it up and play that question again because it's very important as we get into the Cultural Revolution. As I talk with Henry Kissinger about his new book on China, which is linked at HughHewitt.com. It is a must read. I'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, 21 minutes after the hour. Earlier today, I caught up with former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. It is the 40th anniversary on Saturday of his secret trip to China that began the opening to China. And we are discussing that in the context of his new bestseller, On China, uh, which is an amazing book, very engrossing, a complete sort of short history of China, including uh, a lot of emphasis on the last 40 years. And uh, we continue my conversation with Dr. Kissinger. Do you think that that Mao's brutality weighed on him? Did you ever get a sense of that, Dr. Kissinger? I had the sense. Well, on the one hand, one of course has to recognize that Zhou Enlai was prime minister during all the excesses of the Mao uh, of the Mao period. And Deng Xiaoping said about about Zhou Enlai once, uh, with, without the premier, the suffering would have been much greater. And he said, but also without the premier, the suffering would not have lasted so long because no one else could manage it. You quote that, in fact, on page 242, and I made some notes at that point, because in On China, this this amazing book, you talk a lot about the Cultural Revolution and the centrality of it and what I believe you sense is history's ultimate ambivalence about it. But does it come down to no Mao, no cultural revolution, no cultural revolution, no Deng Xiaoping, no Deng, no tour of the South, and no tour of the South, no superpower? I I, oh, I wouldn't say that. I first of all, by my standards, and I would suspect by the standards of ninety nine percent of your listeners, the Cultural Revolution was an unmitigated disaster, uh, and uh, it inflicted a degree of suffering that. Uh, no government, by our standards, has a right to inflict on uh, on its on its population. But in China today, uh, a school of thought is evolving that says the Cultural Revolution was what happened us for the for the world in which we live. It showed us essential values, and that comes often from the children of those who suffered. In uh, in the Cultural Revolution, you know, Doctor Kissinger, reading this, I was thinking of Deng Xiaoping, who emerges so vividly in On China. In the context of Souls and Eats, and they both suffered incredibly at the hands of their countries. But Souls and Eats became a great artist, and Deng Xiaoping became the great reformer of China. Uh, meaning, could could China be what it is today without people like Deng Xiaoping, who had been crushed and shattered? Oh, without Deng Xiaoping. It's- to imagine the China of today arising. Uh, I thought I had met all the top leaders of China of the last 40 years, but I I cannot think of one who ever developed for me the vision that Deng implemented. And so uh, without Deng, everything would have been much slower. But the essence of your question is, Deng, who after all was also a major cooperated with Mao and implemented many of his more brutal measures when they first came into power, would he have acted as he did if he had not been first purged and gone through yes. uh, all that suffering? 
Or was he purged because Mao suspected that that's what he wanted to do all along? Uh, I, my guess is that Mao suspected him of being more practical than ideological, and that sooner or later he'd implement his maxim, uh, I don't care whether a cat is uh, black or gray as long as it catches mice. Yeah. When you returned to San Clemente to brief President Nixon in a room I spent a lot of hours in, you were very short on the details. When you sat down with RN, what did you tell him about what you had discovered uh, during the course of your secret visit there? Well, uh, you know that Nixon had one of the most penetrating uh, minds uh, that I have encountered in politics. And secondly, he knew a lot about foreign policy. So when you talk to Nixon, you were not talking in uh, on, on a blank sheet. You were talking within a framework that he had very uh, well articulated uh, for himself. So he wanted to know uh, many of the details uh, of uh, how, how does Joe think? What is his approach? Is he conceptual? Is he practical? Uh, remember, we had no experience with him whatsoever. It might amuse the uh, your audience, and you would understand it. It's uh, When I was in China, I must have been the only senior representative who ever came to China who did not want to meet Mao uh, on that first visit, because uh, I knew that Nixon had his heart set to be the first American leader to negotiate with Mao and, and to meet him. That makes perfect sense. It yep. makes a lot of sense. You, you but, write, you write about... Mao had given instructions to join Lai, which I didn't know, that if I asked for a meeting, I should be brought immediately to him. Uh, but I never asked for a meeting. And huh. I was sort of terrified that he would invite me to come, which I couldn't have refused. That, that, that is fascinating. You know, you write about Nixon that he had a unique grasp of long-term international trends. And a little bit later, however, on page 393, that he didn't foresee the fall of the wall. And, of course, he didn't see the rise of Islamist terror or this domination of China now. Can uh, anyone what who... Nixon foresaw uh, was that the communist system was not tenable. But he did not foresee the fall of the wall, nor did I, nor did anyone else. Yeah, as quickly as he did. That that brings me to the question about democratic leadership. If Nixon was the most talented on foreign affairs of the president, can any president get to that job with the skill sets necessary to contend with dynastic rulers like Mao and Deng Xiaoping and other ones who have the benefit of of time in office? Well, uh, the issue you raise is one important point. Another important point is, it says, when Nixon ran for office, he did so on the basis that he thought the man with the best program would would win. Now, uh, when people run for office, they really are more concerned with the technique of uh, of electoral appeal than with the substance of electoral appeal, because they have to paint on such a huge canvas in their own uh, uh, they're on display every uh, hour of the day. So whether current candidates of either party can gain enough experience uh, 
you know from your experience with Nixon that he read a lot, that he was in seclusion a lot. Uh, the modern page of, of politics doesn't permit that. Oh, interesting. We'll come right back and continue my conversation with Dr. Henry Kissinger. His brand new book on China is riveting. Uh, it's, uh, it's a popular history combined with an essay on statesmanship, but mostly it's a, um, a prism through which to understand what China is doing. And as I discussed with him after the break, it's a message to people in China as well. Uh, lots more ahead in my conversation with Henry Kissinger. Stay tuned. The transcript will be up at HughHewitt.com shortly. You're listening to The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. 34 minutes after the hour. A few weeks ago, Henry Kissinger published a very important new book on China, which is linked at HughHewitt.com today, two days before the 40th anniversary of his secret trip to China I had the chance to interview Dr. Kissinger about the book and other matters for a long period of time. We continue replaying that interview now. Back to the book on China. It's it's both a book and what I tell people a fact. It's you know it's a history, but it's also an instrument of history to the extent it impacts decision makers here or in China. It's certainly going to do the former. But as to the latter, the people reading it in China, what do you hope it accomplishes? Are you writing it for the triumphalists or the opponents of the triumphalists? Who's its audience in China you most want to read it? Now that. There are two slightly different purposes uh, in writing the book. One is uh, to explain uh, how Chinese think about international affairs to non-Chinese. Not to explain the Chinese point of view so much as to explain the way of thinking, the different concepts of time uh, and, and the different concepts of deterrent and defense that the uh, uh, Chinese have. Now, as far as the Chinese is concerned, uh, what my book might do is to show them how their actions are interpreted by other countries. And therefore, if they, to the extent that they care about what other countries think, that to enable them to conduct a policy that leads to cooperation rather than confrontation, if that is the decision they have made. One of the themes is that you document is that China historically has feared encirclement. But now it looks to many of us who follow it from journalism that they are moving beyond defense to offense with their, you know, their investments in drones, their cyber attacks, and, and a variety of, of very provocative moves. Is this the triumph of the triumphalists, Dr. Kissinger? in China at least two groups, one that you call the triumphalists and the others that don't have a clear label, but that I would say uh, talk about partnership with the United States. Uh, at this moment, the partnership group seems to be uh, uh, the more em- preeminent one, but the other one is certainly uh, vocal enough. So the big challenge that China has and that to some extent we have is, is, is this when you have two major powers that impinge on each other all over the world as we do the outcome is very often conflict but we know that a conflict between two countries of this magnitude is going to have catastrophic consequences so can the leaders of both sides uh, find a mechanism and a way of uh, of working together uh, and to avoid the catastrophe that happened in Europe 
where nations went to war, and I'm talking about World War One, went to war, uh, and if they had known what the world would look like five years later, they would never have done it. Uh, can we avoid that? Uh, can we avoid uh, that outcome? Yeah, one of the bra- certainly trends in China to worry about. One of the bracing things, alarming things, is at the end of On China, you quote a couple of their current bestsellers, one of which calls the United States an old cucumber painted green. Another is uh, PLA Senior Colonel Lee Mung Fu's China Dream, that the great goal is to be number one and that there's a marathon contest to duel the century underway with us. And then your essay on the Crow Memorandum. I, I finished the book thinking you might be a fatalist about the inevitability of, of a big conflict. No, I'm saying if you just study history, if you insist that history repeats itself, then you become fatalistic. But when you think that you have an obligation to create a better world and to learn from history, then you try to avoid the mistakes that previous generations have made. But one shouldn't kid oneself. If both sides are driven by nationalistic impulses, the tensions are going to get more and more severe. Uh, and that is what both sides have to try to avoid. Uh, it's, it's not something that we can do unilaterally. Do you? We'll come back there. You cannot kid yourself. And uh, that is what On China really is about, is not kidding yourself about who they are and what they have been through. And the position they find themselves in with a debtor United States in a domestic crisis with incredibly weak leadership that doesn't know what it's doing, is blundering around the globe, and this triumphalist thrust underway domestically in China that we just talked about. Much more ahead in my conversation with Henry Kissinger. His book, On China, fast read. I mean, it's very readable. It's it's riveting. And uh, I've linked it at HughHewitt.com. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thanks for listening today. Earlier today, I interviewed Dr. Henry Kissinger, author most recently of On China, of course, Secretary of State under Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, National Security Advisor under Richard Nixon. Forty years ago Saturday, he journeyed secretly to China to begin the opening of China that Nixon completed in February of 1972. Back to my conversation with Henry Kissinger. Do you um, uh, you made the analogy of the U.S. of the United Kingdom German relations in the early 20th century as as perhaps informing U.S. PR, uh, P, uh, People's Republic of China relations now, but do you also see China acting today as Japan did 90 and 100 years ago and and aggressively pushing out a co-prosperity sort of sphere? Uh, it's not the normal Chinese style. The normal Chinese style is to influence by osmosis rather than by uh, than by conquest. Uh, if they were to behave like Japan, the outcome would be very similar, as in the case of Japan. They haven't done that yet, but they have certainly been more assertive, especially in the reach in the South China Sea, than makes one comfortable. Why are they so afraid, Dr. Kissinger, of Christianity in China? Their persecution of the house church has accelerated quite a lot in recent days and months. They are not afraid of uh, Christianity as such. They are afraid of any organization or movement or faith that asserts an independent control separate from the political structure of the state because they think this would undermine Chinese cohesion and because 
they also have had the experience of in the 19th century where a um, religious uh, a group of religious fanatics uh, that called themselves Christian with a weird theology uh, and claimed that uh, that Jesus had come back in China it produced a horrendous civil war. Uh, but the major concern is that for thousands of years China has been dominated by a strong government and has been uh, suspicious of organized activity that is not subject to its uh, influence. Now, now, what would your advice be since the, the mistreatment of Christians is such a flashpoint in the United States? You've got all these great chapters on how human rights agenda have often complicated the relationships between our country and theirs. What would your advice be to the Chinese hierarchy about how to handle the evangelical movement in its midst? Oh, uh, let me say, uh, first of all, uh, the sentence you read that human rights agenda is addressed to just one limited point, namely the use of American governmental sanctions uh, trying to oblige China to follow our human rights preferences because that leads to confrontations. And my preference to make those demarches uh, without a uh, formal challenge. I fully understand concerns of evangelicals who express their uh, worries in uh, private organizations that they may and, and, and produce public expressions of these concerns. That is a, not only a legitimate but an important exercise of our democratic principles. Uh, so what would your advice be to the Chinese about accommodating? Well, or- my advice to the Chinese would be to understand that America feels very strongly about certain principles of which uh, respect for religion is an important one and in making their judgments they should keep in mind that you can't just judge them by the mood of the moment but by what the long range perception of their country is in the United States. I'd like to go back now to Mao, Dr. Kissinger, especially to the chapters early in his reign. Uh, did he make a great strategic error, one for the benefit of the free world, that he did not take Taiwan or, or assault Taiwan before the beginning of the Korean War? It probably, in retrospect, in, his, in, in the mind of the Chinese leaders, that it's probably an argument that opponents used against him. And uh, the ironical fact is that had he done that, he probably would not have intervened in the Korean War. One of the impulses that, in his mind, obliged him to enter the Korean War was that having failed to uh, liberate, in their terms, Taiwan, to permit a uh, communist country on its borders to be defeated on top of that would have been a double setback. Uh, you also, on aside here on American leadership, you talk about the Atchison speech in January of 1950 when Dean Atchison did not communicate well American objectives. And you say, quote, to the extent deterrence requires clarity about a country's intention 
Atchison's speech missed the mark. Are we doing that today in failing to communicate around the world what is and what is not of great significance to us? But there are two levels of communicating. Uh, one is you make the other side understand how you view uh, a, a challenge. The other is to draw a precise line. And this, this issue isn't always the same. Now, actually, Atchison in 1950 was absolutely brilliant in his analysis of the situation. And he foresaw that someday Russia and China would uh, would would clash. Uh, what he failed to to do is to make clear that an attack on Korea would be considered by America a threat to our security. Partly because we didn't know that uh, our military planning had been to have Korea outside uh, our security zone. And General MacArthur had made a similar set of remarks uh, that uh, that Atchison had made, uh, but uh, they made it in an abstract context. So when we faced the reality of Korea being occupied and therefore Japan being potentially threatened, we made the geostrategically correct choice. But we had not communicated it well. I'll be right back to continue the conversation. We had not communicated it well indeed. That's all covered in Kissinger's new book on China, linked at HughHewitt.com. It's Hugh Hewitt. Let's get one more Q&A in uh, from my interview with Dr. Kissinger earlier today. I'll play the conclusion of it next hour. The book on China is linked at HughHewitt.com. But now I talk to Dr. Kissinger about President Obama. Do you think President Obama in his messages to the Islamic world may be communicating a lack of clarity about what does and does not matter to America's national interests? I think he he does not always bring together the his idealistic version and his geostrategic necessities. And there's some things that are geostrategic necessities which means you are going to defend them. And if you leave lack of clarity about that, you can wind up in a dangerous situation. I want to go back to Mao and some of these extraordinary quotes in On China, Dr. Kissinger. At one point, he said, I I think I'm going to hold on to that. I I don't want to get into the middle of this quote. And so uh, we'll come back after the break. And uh, in the meantime, if you want to call, I'll be taking your calls in reaction to China and Kissinger's conversation Next hour at 1-800-520-1234. I barely touched my outline. Uh, and uh, he was generous with his time. He gave me more time than he had originally slotted for it uh, in the conversation, but I barely touched my outline. I did get to the 24 characters and the 12 characters. You sinologists will understand that those are the final messages that Deng Xiaoping left. But uh, the, the, there's so much, and I, you know, I keep my eye on the PRC as much as I can. I, I try and figure out what is being said and what the facts uh, factions are. But the benefit of on China is that it's all in a context. It's all in a piece. He starts 2,000 years before the birth of Christ and brings you up to last week or early January, actually. And it may be incredibly relevant, not just because of the 
approach of the 40th anniversary of Kissinger's secret trip on July 9th, 1971, which is this Saturday. Interesting, I don't see much recognition of that in the United States, but also because of the uh, apparent illness of Jiang Zemin, who was the president after Deng Xiaoping, uh, China is said to be jamming cyber uh, news, trying to remove news of this. I, they, they may be afraid of demonstrations in the aftermath of his death, such as those that followed Zhou Enlai's death. And uh, I didn't get a chance to talk Tiananmen Square with Kissinger. There is a fascinating section on the book uh, on Tiananmen Square, and that's why, well, you can listen to the rest of the interview when we come back. Don't go anywhere, America, one 800 Then we will talk about China, our near-peer competitor, and whether we ought to be cutting $700 billion from the defense budget in an era where we have a, um, a new and energized tiger in Asia uh, for the first time in thousands of years prepared to challenge for global, not just regional domination. More ahead on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Stay tuned. Morning, glory, evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. On Saturday is the 40th anniversary of Henry Kissinger's secret trip to China. His brand new book on China in bookstores everywhere. Link to HughHewitt.com. I interviewed him earlier today. Here's the conclusion of that interview. I want to go back to Mao and some of these extraordinary quotes in On China, Dr. Kissinger. At one point, he says to you in November of 1973, so long as the objectives are the same, we would not harm you, nor would you harm us. And we can work together to commonly deal with a bastard. Actually, it would be that sometime we want to criticize you for a while, and you want to criticize us for a while. You say away with you communists. We say away with you imperialists. Sometimes we say things like that. It would not do not to do that. Now, this casual embrace by this world historical figure of rhetorical excess, it, it's so cynical. At the same time, is it common among either Chinese leaders or diplomats everywhere to just look at each other and say, yeah, 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 we know, or or the modern day equivalent, yada, yada, yada. Does this go on all the time? No, you can't identify. Mao was a man of, uh, of much greater intellectual reach than most uh, than most people who practice diplomacy, and there was always an element of menace in uh, in, uh, in in what he said. The basic point he was obviously making in this remark was this uh, was this was within a few years of the Soviet Union collecting a million troops on the Chinese border and uh, engaging in a series of military clashes with China. Uh, so the main major point was we've got to work together on this problem. But he seemed to be saying each of us have our own constituencies, so every once in a while we need, we should be free to criticize each other. This degree of cynicism uh, cannot be carried over any extended period of time because you confuse your own uh, constituencies more than you help uh, whomever you're wanting to deal with. Well, let's focus on that element of menace for a moment, Dr. Kissinger. At another point, he says to you, when you ask him how to survive the storm he predicts is coming, he says, Dunkirk, we adopt the Dunkirk strategy. That is, we will allow them to occupy Beijing, Wuhan, Shanghai, and in that way, through such tactics, we will become victorious and the enemy will be defeated. 
Both world wars, the first and the second, were conducted in that way, and victory was obtained only later. That's from page 309. Was the chairman serious on this and on the many other occasions when he sort of casually professed indifference to tens of millions of deaths, maybe even hundreds of millions of deaths? Yeah, he, he would use the figure 300 million dead. Well, you have to consider that the, what was the objective situation of China at that moment? Uh, it was very weak. And it had maneuvered itself into a position of hostility to almost all of its neighbors, and truly all of the great powers. So some of this was rhetoric to discourage uh, uh, other countries uh, from trying to take advantage of, of this weakness. And there was this uh, frequently repeated stance, yes, you can come in, you can take cities, you can... But we will never quit, and we will defeat you by fighting in the interior uh, of our country. That he probably meant when he said 300 million, we accept 300 million dead. decided meant he didn't understand uh, the nature of nuclear warfare, or he was, uh, uh, or, or he was uh, 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 bluffing. But having said all of this, it takes a certain type of person to bring off such a bluff if that's what it was. You are there as a statesman, but you're also a historian and a scholar. Did that ever break out in you where you just sort of put aside the statesman role and you look at a Mao or a Deng Xiaoping and you ask them about their nature, their character, you know, even their histories like their participation in the Long March, or do you always have to stay in the moment as the statesman? No, I'm a historian. So less with Mao than uh, with Zhou, I did review historical situations with him. And actually he, on my first lunch in Beijing, began to explain the Cultural Revolution to me. Uh, so that we spent about an hour on that uh, subject in a period when I had only about 24 hours of negotiation available. Wow. wow. What was he trying to communicate to you through doing that? He was trying to communicate to me that for whatever we knew of the Cultural Revolution at the time, we should not conclude that China was a divided country and not worthwhile as a potential associate uh, because they had overcome whatever had caused them to undertake the Cultural Revolution. And, okay. and that uh, but that actually was not quite accurate at that moment because the Cultural Revolution went on for another three years. Now, Dr. Kishner, I've got to be uh, careful of your time here, but I've got to cover two yeah. more things with you, and, and that is... Some, yeah, yeah, another, no more than five minutes. All right. Should the United States be trying to encourage Russia to be as strong now as you and Nixon did towards China visa Russia there in order to blunt Chinese power? No, I think it's a different problem. First of all, Chinese power militarily is not anywhere near as great as Soviet uh, uh, power was at that moment. Uh, uh, we should, the fact that China is surrounded by countries of, of considerable size, so a Chinese military adventure would, in either north or towards north or south, would not be an easy matter. Secondly, the Soviet Union has huge stockpile 
of tactical and uh, strategic nuclear weapons. So, uh, uh, but we, we uh, and, and therefore I believe that the uh, emphasis should be on political, social, and economic uh, relationships right. and on balancing the nuclear weapons both Russia and the United States have and reducing them to the, to the greatest ex extent possible. I don't think we should get into a posture in which we use, try to use the Soviet Union as a military uh, point uh, against China. Penultimate question, Dr. Kissinger. You don't mention much, though you do in passing it on China, about China's Muslim population, which is it's large in absolute numbers. Would the U.S. be smart, if not to actually abet the Islamic radicalism in China, to do everything to, you know, sort of stand aside and watch it happen? Or ought we ought to be helping the Chinese vis-a-vis -vis Islamist radicalism in their own country? I think we have learned uh, from our support of the Taliban during the first phase of the Afghan war when the Soviet Union was occupying uh, that to any support of radical Islamic uh, groups it's going to find its way eventually to the uh, to the United States. And I want to close by asking you about Deng Xiaoping and his 24-character instruction, his 12-character instruction. This is fascinating to me. I think everyone should read this. Uh, and the 12-character instruction is, enemy troops are outside the walls. They are stronger than we. We should be mainly on the defensive. And it's that word mainly that worries me in the context of your book, which again and again shows that the PRC likes sudden sharp blows, as in Korea, as in India, as in the third Vietnam War. Was Deng Xiaoping saying that that's a good strategy? And how worried are you about a sudden sharp, mainly uh, defensive, but occasionally shatteringly offensive strategy by the PRC? Well, we have to understand that that is their strategic pattern. And uh, worrying about it doesn't help. Uh, one has to be aware uh, that we must avoid situations where that strategy can be applied. Are we approaching one of those? I don't see... Uh, I don't see any place where this is imminent. Uh, maybe in the South China Seas uh, is a situation which we should look at very carefully. Uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger, thank you for your time. It's a magnificent book on China. I hope to talk with you again further about it sometime in the future. Thank you for your kind words. Folks, America's colleges and universities today are less concerned with critical thinking than with indoctrination. No wonder that so many young Americans embrace cancel culture, deny free speech to conservatives, and celebrate, actually celebrate terrorism. But I'm happy to report there is a college where students debate ideas openly and honestly, and they pursue truth together with their professors and where America's great heritage of liberty is studied and revered. My favorite college, Hillsdale College. As stated in Hillsdale's founding document in 1844, Hillsdale's original mission was to offer the kind of serious liberal arts education needed to preserve the blessings of civil and religious liberty across the land. And this mission continues to guide Hillsdale College today. You can learn more at q4hillsdale.com. That's q4hillsdale.com. There you'll find a short video. It's just over a minute long showing how Hillsdale's work, not only on its Michigan and Washington, D.C. campuses, but also across the nation, is effective in defending American liberty. 
Take some time to watch today at HughForHillsdale.com. That's HughForHillsdale.com. I tracked down Dr. Henry Kissinger, Nobel laureate. At the age of 99, he has put out his brand new book, Leadership, and I'm talking with him about it. This is the conclusion in these two segments of that interview from last night. Now, at the, uh, at the beginning of the book, you talk about all these great leaders, uh, Adenauer, De Gaulle, Nixon, and you go through all the things that combine them together. But at the end, you're looking forward at the conclusion of the book, and you're looking at particularly the war in Ukraine right now. And you write a historically creative solution would neutralize Ukraine under a guarantee from the great powers. And you cite the Treaty of London uh, in 1839 when Belgium was guaranteed, its neutrality was guaranteed, which lasted for 75 years. Nicholas I signed off on that, the guy who's allegedly the definition of autocrat. Are you suggesting Putin is like... No, but I I think the, the solution... What would have been, this would have been a creative solution at the beginning of the evolution of the Ukrainian issue. If at the beginning, when the Soviet Union broke up, if Ukraine had been made not as an outpost of one side or the other, but as a possible bridge for the two sides, that is now not no longer possible. And by having missed that moment, now we're in a situation in which Russia has attacked a sovereign country that wanted to be part of the of of the Western world. So the outcome has to be one in which the Western powers are not are not defeated, and now we have to. I, I don't think we should ever have got into that, into that position. Well, you write in the conclusion that we ought never to drive China and Russia together. We have done so, haven't no, we? That we? Yes. Now we are making, we are driving China and, and Russia together to, to continue to, uh, to continue extend. Of course, Nixon, who was in a comfortable position of of having two enemies to deal with in China and in Russia, decided to divide them and keep them try to keep them divided, and that was the genius of his opening to China. It was but, you write right. at the end about Margaret Thatcher and U.S.-China relations that she had to give up in Hong Kong in exchange for an imperfect deal, but it lasted fifty years. And you are not an optimist about which way it's going. Were there any? Are there any? Do you suspect there are any agreements with China now concerning Taiwan that will restrain the present government of China? There is. I think there was an understanding that was reached, which was that China could assert that it wanted a one-China solution, but it could not pressure the United States to achieve it and that the United States would show restraint in not as recommending a, a two-power solution. Uh, so that there was some uh, ambiguity in the phraseology. But if one side, if the Chinese attempt to solve the problem by force, uh, then it cannot be, then we will 
danger of war would become very great. But we should, uh, our preference should be to avoid that situation, but also not to let uh, Taiwan be taken over by force. Uh, Dr. Kissinger, the very succinct summary of the conundrum in which the world finds itself is in your conclusion. The conundrum is whether two different concepts of national government can exist peacefully, even cooperatively, side by side. Each thinks itself exceptional, but differently. The United States acts on the premise that its values are universally applicable and will ultimately be adopted everywhere. China expects that its civilizational uniqueness and impressive economic performance will inspire other societies to show deference to its priorities. Both the United States' missionary impulse and China's sense of cultural preeminence imply a kind of subordination to the other. The two nations are impinging, partly by momentum, importantly by design, on what the other had heretofore considered its core interests. There is no final resolution. That's realism, as starkly put as possible, Dr. Kissinger. How does that impact American policymakers? How ought it to impact the Chinese policymakers? The policymakers on both sides are facing a unprecedented situation in the world. But they now have a capacity to not only to destroy each other, but to destroy civilization itself. I agree, Dr. Kissinger, but I am a pessimist after reading this. When you meditated at the end of the book about the distribution of destructive technologies being very far advanced, and you're talking primarily of cyber and artificial intelligence and and a sort of automated world war, one that's a limited war becomes a nuclear one through unintended or uncontrollable escalation, the human element is almost going to be gone and non-nation state actors are going to possess the ability to oblige confrontation. I mean, I, I really, I'm reminded of the late Dr. Krautheimer saying the reason we've never been contacted by an advanced civilization is anyone who gets too advanced destroys itself. Well, Krautheimer was a person I admired enormously and to my met frequently as I could. 
good for me. Do you think his realism on this point is prophetic? No. Realism, but it's really, you mean his perception of how very advanced civilizations have destroyed themselves? Yes. Was it prophetic? Yes, I do. Oh. I think. You know, the ability to walk back from the destruction of World War II into a into an Eisenhower era of caution, it's not going to be possible again uh, with automated intelligence, with artificial intelligence that is automatic. I I don't know how we get out of this bind. Certainly we will need leaders, though. And I wanted to ask you, by the way. way The only way we can walk back from that is to have leaders like Eisenhower at various points uh, in in his career, but that was just the beginning of the problem. Uh, but to have leaders who are capable of being both strong and restrained, and not to permit the mechanism of their internal decision making and their the morale of the decision making, uh, drive them into irreversible actions which humanity will not be able to tolerate. That, that is the precipice. Now, part of that requires meritocracy to produce leaders who can somehow dance on that cliff's edge. I remember at President Nixon's funeral, you said he stood on pinnacles that became precipice. Well, we are now on a precipice, actually, and we need a meritocracy. And a lot of your conclusion is devoted to the collapse of the American meritocracy. And... Uh, maybe collapses a little bit too strong. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Here's the conclusion of my conversation with Dr. Henry Kissinger, Nobel laureate, age 99, just published a brand new book, Leadership, which is really riveting. And here's the final. I taped it last night. Here are the final three minutes of that. You write that the civic patriotism that once lent prestige to public service appears to have been outflanked by an identity-based factionalism and a competing cosmopolitanism. In America, a growing number of college graduates aspire to become globe-trotting corporate executives or professional activists. One cannot escape the sense that something is amiss when the relationship between the leadership class and much of the public is defined by mutual hostility and suspicion. I do not even be, I can't pretend to know how to get out of that bind, Dr. Kissinger. Do you? I cannot write a prescription that you can apply like the sort of a cookbook, really. But you have to hope that our people believe in their fundamental values and that in the process, we will create standards that enable one to recognize great leaders when they emerge, which is not self-evident now. It is not self-evident. We cannot be resigned. It's the essence of leadership to believe in the possibility of what is necessary. Well, I'm tempted to end there, but I have to ask you a few more things about our mutual friend. He was your colleague, and I was he was my boss, President Nixon. He was quote unshakably convinced of the basic legitimacy of the American way of life particularly the opportunities for social mobility as his own life personified. Do you believe the American leadership class still believes 
unshakably as President Nixon did in the legitimacy of our way of life. Not generally. I agree. How do we get that back? That is the duty of people who are concerned with this issue. In too many of the universities, these basic values are being defined as questionable and not as essential. I, I agree. I want to close with this. Yeah, I'm so glad you used Alan Bloom's translation of Plato's Republic, uh, because this book reads in part like the closing of the American mind. You also used Harvey Mansfield and Delba Winthrop's De Tocqueville. You didn't use Harvey Mansfield, Nathan Tarkov's translation of Machiavelli's discourse. A side note, do you just use the translations that are handy, or do you have favorite translations? Well, I'm afraid uh, I use handy translations. Okay, and and... Are you friendly with Harvey Mansfield? Were you on the faculty together at Harvard at the same time? We were on the faculty together. We were friends. So were you ever involved in the arguments uh, by the students of Strauss about his legacy, Harvey on the East Coast, uh, Harry Jaffa on the West Coast, or did you stay out of that argument? No, I was not involved. But I'm afraid you. I have to end this. Okay, I understand. If Doc- you let me call you tomorrow, I'll tell you why. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.